0: Okay, in this lecture we're going to cover the immune system and a few different immunologic conditions that include hypersensitivity, autoimmunity, and immune deficiency. So let's get started with putting this in the context of some of the things we've already discussed. So let's go back to how this fits into your body's defense mechanisms. So if you recall, there were three lines of defense that we discussed, and I'm kind of going to go from the bottom up here to reflect the image that we have here. The first line of defense that we discussed was physical barriers or mechanical barriers. These were things like the skin, the mucous membranes, tears, saliva, saliva, stomach acid, etc. The second line of defense then was those things that Um, are part of what's called innate immunity. This is part of the immune system but reacting in a way that is non-specific. So this is something that will react the same regardless of what it comes in contact with. So this was things that we discussed in a previous lecture like inflammation and parts of the white blood cell family that are included in phagocytosis and natural killer cells. Now that's something we haven't really discussed and we will talk about it slightly here in this particular lecture, but the thing I want to point out about both phagocytosis and natural killer cells, even though they both involve types of white blood cells, phagocytosis is done largely by neutrophils and macrophages, which is a mature monocyte. And those are terms we haven't discussed exclusively yet because they will come up in the um, hematologic um, lecture, but we know what they do because we've talked about them in inflammation. Natural killer cells are interesting because they are a type of lymphocyte, but they don't go through a specific type of response. They will react the same way regardless of what they come into contact with, which is why they end up in this category of innate immunity in the second line of defense. Now this entire lecture is going to be about the third line of defense. This is called adaptive immunity because it is specific. In other words, it adapts to whatever it comes in contact with to be very specific in its reaction. So this involves T cells, B cells, who produce antibodies, and those antibodies will react with that specific thing that it comes in contact with, and this will make more sense as we go through the lecture. So let's talk about the components of the immune system. The main components of the immune system are antigens, cells, and antibodies. Now, antigens are often what we think of your body coming into contact with to start an immune reaction. But what I want you to realize about this is that you have them within yourself to mark your own cells that hopefully your immune system will tolerate, in other words, not react to. But they are also what your body reacts to when it doesn't recognize them, when it realizes that it has come in contact with something foreign. Now usually these are proteins, but sometimes there is a non-protein version of an antigen um, where something can be combined with your own proteins that your body reacts to, not yourself, but what is combined with self. And that will come into play in a little bit here. Sometimes it's an allergen um, that you are reacting to. Um, the other component here to talk about quite extensively is cells. The main immune cell is the lymphocyte, and that's really important to know. Now there are a ton of different types of lymphocytes, and we'll go over all of those, but if you were to think about what the main white blood cell is that's responsible for your immune response, that would be the lymphocyte. Even though there is involvement with other types of white blood cells, like neutrophils and macrophages, which are antigen-presenting cells, the main ones that start the whole immune response are in the lymphocyte category. And one of those types of lymphocytes produces antibodies, which help us not only with the immediate response, but help give us a long-term immunity. So these are also proteins, much like your antigens typically are. But these will help antibodies, and this is going to be my abbreviation going forward for antibodies. They help antibodies and cells interact with each other. And these are important because that is going to be what gives you that response to either kill a bacteria or get rid of a virus, whatever that case might be. And this assistant here is one of those other proteins that you make that is a really big part of helping antibodies and cells interact. And I'll talk more about those in a little bit. But what's interesting about all of these together is it is an incredibly complex but quite effective system. But we will talk about at the end of the lecture sometimes where maybe that system is overreacting and not working ideally. And you know those as either hypersensitivities or allergies or autoimmune diseases. So let's go over each one of these one by one. Let's start with antigens. Now antigens are usually proteins that are some sort of cellular marker that is embedded in the cell membrane and kind of sticks out as a marker of either self or non-self. Now on our own cells, they are called major histocompatibility complex. On bacteria and viruses, that's not what they're called. They're just called antigens, but they are little things that stick out on the surface of those particles as well, either the cell of a bacterium or a viral particle. When they are on our own cells to mark us as self, they're completely unique to you unless you have an identical twin that shares identical DNA. They are going to tell your immune system, hey, don't respond to me, this is self they will hopefully indicate to your immune system not to react. That process of non-reaction is called tolerance. Now that's ideally what we want to happen. When you don't have as much tolerance to those self-antigens, that's when you develop an autoimmune disease, which we'll talk about at the end. Now, just for completeness sake, I wanna mention this term here because sometimes people will call them an HLA. That is the abbreviation for human leukocyte antigen. Now, that's an older term for the MHC complex, mainly because when they were initially discovered, they were discovered on the surface of a human white blood cell, or human leukocyte, and so they were originally termed human leukocyte antigen. We've since found out that they exist on all cells in some fashion or another, and so they were termed major histocompatibility complex, and partly because we now know when someone receives a organ donation or tissue transplant that we need to closely match these MHC complex antigens to that donated tissue or your body will attack it as non-self. And so we need to find the most compatible tissue when we're doing that sort of transplantation. So let me talk about the difference between the types, because that's going to come into play in how the immune system works. There are two different types of major histocompatibility antigens. Type 1 exists on all cells except red blood cells. I'm sorry, red blood cells. What they do is they display, and let me make some space here to write, They display antigen that is made inside the cell. In other words, an interior antigen, which means that they are normal looking if the cell is okay. They will not be normal if the cell has been infected by a virus or become cancerous. Okay, so normally, an MHC type 1 antigen is just, just displaying normal antigen that is part of the reflection of what's going on with that cell. It will look normal as long as the cell is normal. If it's virally infected or has become cancerous, it will look abnormal to other cells around it. A type 2 MHC complex antigen is only found on what are called antigen-presenting cells. So things like macrophages and dendritic cells, which present antigen. And they always display antigen they have captured. So they will capture and display external foreign antigen. Okay, so part of their job is to present information they find in their environment rather than information from the interior of that cell. So here's kind of what that looks like. An MHC class 1 molecule, again, present on everything but a red blood cell because red blood cells have some of their own antigens. They are going to present what is inside of the cell. So here, this might be an infected cell, something infected with a virus, for example. It is going to put some of that antigen on the outside of that MHC MHC class 1, so that another cell that comes up to it is going to say, hey, that's not normal, and then do something about it. Whereas an MHC class 2 molecule is present on antigen-presenting cells like macrophages and dendritic cells, and they are going to ingest things from their environment. In this case, this is a bacteria and then process and present that antigen on the surface as part of its MHC class II molecule. Again, so that nearby cells will see that that is abnormal and do something about it. And we'll talk about which cells do what when they see these abnormal MHC molecules in just a minute. So what's going to happen here then is that anything that is not self, when it is displayed as part of an MHC type 1 or type 2 molecule, will generate an immune response. So what happens is if an abnormal or foreign molecule is found on an MHC class 1 molecule, that cell is killed. Because that means that that cell is not okay. It's either infected with a virus or has become cancerous. And that's why the cell that reacts to it is called a cytotoxic T cell. We'll come back to that in a minute as a type of T cell. If a cell, macrophage or dendritic cell, is showing non-self or foreign antigen as part of its MHC class II molecule, then it is going to begin an immune response... from other cells. It is going to get a T helper cell to respond and begin to produce either cytotoxic T cells or antibodies as a reaction. And it will then look for cells to be made specifically toward whatever antigen is being presented as part of that molecule displayed on that macrophage or dendritic cell surface and dendritic cells by the way are kind of like a glorified macrophage they are stationary macrophages are circulating in your system as monocytes and then they become macrophages when they come into contact with something but dendritic cells are stationary in tissues like skin and mucous membranes to react to things that they encounter right there locally. So they're, they're pretty much a, a very similar cell to each other, so don't be confused by the term dendritic cell. So this is how your body starts this reaction. It has to somehow have a mechanism to recognize that there is foreign antigen, and the main way this is done is through an MHC molecule, which when... Totally normal means that there's no response, but when foreign antigen is processed and displayed from inside on an MHC class 1, that cell is killed. If it is displayed on the surface of an MHC class 2 molecule in an antigen presenting cell, it's going to tell the immune system to start a response to whatever that antigen is. So let's talk about how that happens. Okay, so the second big component after antigens is cells in your immune system. And there are some really super important cells that we've talked about quite a bit already, but I want to give you some more detail on each one of them and what they do. So the first one that kind of starts this is antigen-presenting cells. Now macrophages, we also talked about another one here is dendritic cells, but I put macrophages here because we've talked about that one extensively already even when we were talking about inflammation as part of the beginning of healing, etc., So this term is antigen-presenting cell. And your main ones are macrophages, dendritic cells, sometimes neutrophils can do the same thing. Okay, the way I like to think of these is kind of like a Pac-Man, okay? Now maybe I'm dating myself in terms of um, video games but we all kind of get an idea and have an image of what that is. It's something that goes around and eats things. Here, macrophages or dendritic cells, they're going to go around and quote-unquote eat up things in their environment, break them into pieces, and then pop them back out onto the surface of that cell as part of this MHC class 2 molecule that other cells will now be able to react to. In this case, it's lymphocytes who are going to react to that presented antigen and start an immune response. So as I said, lymphocytes are your primary immune cell, and that is because without their response, other cells in your immune system wouldn't really know what to do. These are really important, and there are three different types that we're going to talk about. There are T cells, B cells, and natural killer cells. Let's start with these first two. Now all of these are made in the bone marrow, along with all your other white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. But what distinguishes a T cell from a B cell is not only their ultimate job in life, but where they go to mature. So T cells leave the bone marrow before they are completely mature, and they go to the sinus. That is why they're called a T cell. Thymus is a little gland in your neck where you're going to be um, sort of maturing these white blood cells that are called T cells or lymphocytes into what their ultimate job will be. Whereas if they stay in the bone marrow as a lymphocyte and mature, they are going to be called a B cell and they will ultimately have a different job in the immune system. Now this one here, NK cells, or natural killer cells, are actually a bigger part of the second line of defense. And I'll talk about why that is in a minute, because they react non-specifically. They will have the same process in the immune system regardless of what they come into contact with. So let's go through each of these, because as it turns out, Not only are there three types of lymphocytes, but under these categories, T-cells and B-cells, there are multiple types there as well. So sort of maybe if you have to, come up with like a little um, way of remembering this. So you've got all kinds of white blood cells. Within that, um, you have different types. And one that we're talking about here is lymphocytes. Within that, you have three types. Within T-cells, you have four types. So let's talk about four types of T-cells. Now again, remember when I star something or underline it, it's pretty important to know. T-cells or T-lymphocytes are part of cell-mediated immunity as compared to B-cells, as we'll talk about in a second, which are part of humoral or antibody-mediated immunity. So here, cell-mediated immunity has its effectiveness against Infected cells, so here, they're most helpful with viral infection, fungal infection, protozoal infection, because those are cells, these are cells by themselves, and viruses have to be inside a cell to live. Cancer, which is a cell, and transplants, which are cells from someone else's tissue. So that's why this is cell-mediated immunity. That's where these are most effective. You'll notice one big thing is missing from here and that's bacterial effectiveness. That will come up in a second. Now, what I want you to realize here is that there are four types of T-cells, each with a pretty important but different role, and I'm going to describe these. Now, my favorite way to think of the different types of T-cells that helps me to remember them is the mob family. So I don't know if any of you are from Jersey, or New York, you can sort of think of this as this Italian mob family. And we all, even if that is not something that resonates with you, we've all seen movies about the mob. There are different sort of jobs or roles within those families. And I'm kind of going to equate the cells in the T cell family to the various roles in that kind of situation. So there's always a boss, right, in the mob? Well, our helper T cells, which are sometimes called T4 or CD4 positive cells, is really the boss of the entire immune system. They regulate all other immune cells in the specific response. Okay, They don't really do anything to natural killer cells, which I'll talk about in a second, because those are part of that second nonspecific innate response. But your T4 helper cells um, are called this because the surface of those cells have a marker or an antigen that is called CD4. They are CD4 positive on the surface of their cells. That's how we can identify them when we're testing for them. They're the boss. Okay, this is the head of the crime family of the T lymphocytes, essentially. Now, in any mob family, you've got to have somebody that's going to do your dirty work for you, right? This is your cytotoxic or killer T cell, okay? Not to be confused with a natural killer. These still have to be told who their target is. They have an antigen on their surface called CD8, and that they're sometimes referred to as T8, or CD8 positive cells. But these will kill any cell once programmed. Now this is where it's different than a natural killer cell. So they have to be told once by the boss who their target is and then after that they can kill anytime they see that target. Okay? Once activated, they no longer need the T4 helper cell to give them directions. So I call them the rogue. Okay? They are the guy who's the hitman in your, bo- in your mob family. Okay? They are told who their target is. They take care of business. And every time they see that target, they're going to take care of it. But they only need to be told once what their job is and who they're supposed to target. Now, there's always somebody in the crime family, right, who's like, hey, take it easy. Calm down, relax. This is the suppressor or regulatory T cell. Now, all of your body is a system of checks and balances, okay? This is the, hey, take it easy guy. He's got to kind of calm things down when things get ramped up. This, as its name implies, suppresses the reaction or slows it down when the threat has been lessened. Otherwise, it would continue unchecked and might begin to attack things that you don't intend to attack in the immune system. Okay, This is really important part of the checks and balances in your body. You've got to have some, something that kind of regulates that process. Hey, take it easy, slow down, okay? And then there's always the boss's dad, right? So this is the guy who's no longer in charge of the crime family, but he sits in the corner of the Italian restaurant and says, hey, in my day, this is how we did things, okay? He is still part of the family. He stays in the system for years, decades potentially, and remembers. Okay, that's his job. He remembers, oops, sorry about that. He remembers what happened, what was seen, so that if you were exposed to that threat again in the future, you will have a very quick an effective response without having to go through this whole process again, of regulating those other cells, telling the killer who to get um, who their hit is, and then slowing down that process. They'll remember and immediately react. So this is kind of the elder, the guy who has a really good memory about how to take care of that threat again when you see it. Okay. So if that helps, kind of think of these different roles within a, you know, T cell mob family. And this is kind of an image if you're a visual learner about how that works. So your T cell made in the bone marrow goes to the thymus to mature. And if a macrophage presents an antigen on its MHC2 complex, your T lymphocyte will recognize that And you will now get expansion of, what's called clonal expansion of a helper cell that is specifically meant to recognize this particular um, antigen that is presented. And actually these little circles here are um, lymphokines. It's this orange thing that's actually the antigen, okay? So all these little lymphokines or cytokines or interleukins um, are going to be part of what's secreted by these cells to tell them that we need to expand. We need to learn how to address this particular antigen. And one of the things the T helper cell does is it tells these T cytotoxic cells what their target is. Remember, they're the killer cells. They're gonna go out, find that target, and take care of it. Then you've got some that just sit around and remember how to do that for the future. And then others that say, take it easy, slow down, suppress your response. Okay, hopefully this makes sense. Now all of this takes time. One of the reasons that this cell mediated response is slower or delayed is because this whole process takes time. This will come into play when we start talking about hypersensitivity responses because when we have a T cell hypersensitivity, you'll realize that it takes time for that to happen and that's why allergies to certain things may not show up immediately as soon as you're exposed. They may show up after a day or two, and we'll come back to that. But they're not the only part of lymphocytes that are really important in your immune response. One of the other cells is B cells, or B lymphocytes. These are not cell-mediated response. They are what's called the humoral immunity, which is another fancy way to say antibody-mediated immunity because that's one of their biggest jobs is to produce antibodies. Now they are most effective against bacteria which normally reside outside of your cells and any viruses that are not yet inside of an infected cell. Okay, so these are not cell mediated in the sense that they're going to have a reaction that doesn't necessarily involve an internal antigen. These are more external antigens that they are reacting to, bacteria and extracellular viruses. Now there are two types here as well. Okay, so this is maybe a smaller crime family, if you will, in terms of the mob. But here, it is not a cellular reaction. It is to produce antibodies. So here, a mature B cell Once shown the antigen by the T helper cell, it will begin to expand and reproduce and generate antibodies specifically to the antigen that it was shown by your T4 helper cell. Then there are some of those that don't begin to produce antibodies actively. They instead become one of those cells that sits in the corner and remembers. So the next time you come into contact with that bacteria or extracellular virus, you will remember, in this case, how to make those antibodies again. In fact, usually what they do is they have a version of that antibody on the surface of their cell, that when they come into contact with something that fits perfectly with it, they now know they've seen it before and start a very quick reaction to that. So here's kind of an image of how that works. If you have bacteria in your system and a macrophage takes it in, breaks it up, and puts it out on the surface as part of its MHC, a B cell, after being told by a T4 helper cell, will take a look at that antigen and begin to make antibodies that are specific to it. They are meant to combine with that antigen only and they become a mature B-cell or plasma cell whose job is to make antibodies. Once it secretes those antibodies, and sometimes a memory B-cell will keep those antibodies on their surface, kind of similar to what this looks like. Anytime that antigen is seen, it can combine with it. And then I'll tell you in a second kind of what happens to those when it's combined with an antibody. Now, as part of your innate, immune reaction, you have another lymphocyte that kind of falls into a separate category. These are NK cells or natural killer cells. Now, what makes them different from your T cells and B cells is that they are technically more part of the second line of defense because they are non-specific. They don't react to a specific antigen, they react the same way to anything they come in contact with. They will do things like bind to antigen-antibody complexes. They will also be able to kill a cell without instruction from a T helper cell. They can kill cancerous cells and virally infected cells just by recognizing that there's an abnormal change to the surface of the um, natural mhc complex that's part of those cells but they don't need that instruction they are natural killers unlike a cytotoxic t-cell who has to at least be given its instructions once as to its target or who it's supposed to take out okay so that's what makes them a little bit different than t-cells and b-cells but they are a type of lymphocyte they just have a little bit different role now Here's kind of a review of all that. Again, if you're a visual learner, this might help a little bit. So in the bone marrow, you make all kinds of different white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. Within those white blood cells, you have certain lymphocytes that either mature in the thymus and become T cells or remain in the bone marrow and become B cells. But their role is very different, okay? Your T cells often remain in lymph nodes or migrate to lymph nodes after they've become mature because that's where they're going to be able to sort of filter and come into contact with macrophages and antibody or um, antigens, things that are going to be filtered from the blood, from exposures to things. Then they can further be differentiated into various types of sensitized T lymphocytes who have a different role. Remember, your T helper cell is the boss. You have a cytotoxic T cell who's gonna be told who they need to kill, a memory T cell who's gonna help them um, remember that target in the future, and a suppressor T cell who kinda calms the reaction. Your helper T cell, though, has a really big role or job in helping those mature B cells, also potentially present in your lymph nodes, to react to the antigen that they've been presented. And then they become either a plasma cell that makes antibodies, or a memory B cell that's going to be able to find that again in the future and react more quickly. Okay, so let's talk about if that B cell is making an antibody, what what does that mean? What is it making? So antibodies, again, made by what are called plasma cells, which are a mature type of B cell that has been sensitized to an antigen, they are going to make different types of antibodies. Now, there is a basic structure to an antibody that looks kind of like this picture. It's sort of a Y-shaped protein. And in this Y-shaped protein, you have in the yellow here what's called a constant area. That is going to basically be the same in all antibodies. It's this variable area in red that is the antigen binding site. This is the area that changes. It is variable based on the specific antigen it is exposed to or made for. So here, this is where you're going to get that specificity. It is made to combine with an individual antigen, okay, and that end part or um, variable area at the end here in red is going to combine with only that antigen only. Now here, At the bottom, you can see some notes about what the constant area does. There is a place where a protein called complement can bind. There's also a place where a phagocyte, in other words, a macrophage or dendritic cell can bind, and then it will be phagocytized, or that antigen will be brought inside of the antigen-presenting cell, and it will be destroyed. So this is one of the ways that antibodies not only can help neutralize an antigen, but help other cells to react to antigens. In this case, by helping your phagocytic cells to react to an antigen that has been combined with an antibody. Now there are five types of antibodies that look a little bit different and each have a little bit different role. So I'm going to explain these. IgM, and by the way, Ig is just a fancy abbreviation for immunoglobulin. Globulin is a, name, a fancy name for protein. So an immunoglobulin is an immune protein. And here, the letter at the end is what describes how they are different or indicates how they are different. IgM is important as one of the first antibodies made. It is one of the first ones produced and it is very large. It is what is called a pentamer. So it takes five of those Y-shaped proteins and connects them all at the base, like a star or a snowflake. But it is only short term. And it kind of makes sense if you look at it. The first antibody you make, you want to have the most ability to combine with antigen. So here, it's basically got 10 antigen binding sites around its star-shaped or snowflake-shaped structure. So that means it is going to be most able to neutralize and combine with antigen that it comes in contact with. But you really only need that strong of a response in the beginning. Okay, that's why it's the first produced, and it doesn't last very long. It is not going to necessarily give you long-term immunity. That's where IgG comes in. So it is going to be the most abundant, okay? This is the one produced usually second, after IgM. It is more slowly produced, but it is what gives you long-term immunity. So, for example, if you had the flu, the respiratory flu, influenza, last year, you Will still right now have IgG antibodies to that particular flu virus in your system. If you had chickenpox as a child, you most likely still have IgG in your system right now that is specifically made to the chickenpox virus. This is what gives us that ability to fight off something when we see it again in the future because it sticks around in the system for a while. And here's an example of what it looks like. It's basically the general Y-shaped original structure that I showed you, the basic building block of the the immunoglobulin um, protein. But it is not as great at getting things that you are initially exposed to in different tissues. For example, it is not great because it is more present in the bloodstream, at getting at things that you're exposed to maybe in the respiratory system where you're breathing things in. So IgA is one of the really big antibodies present in your mucosa and in what's called immune paint. So you have these um, types of tissues that are in various places in the body that are highly concentrated with... Um, sort of a immune lymphocyte lymphatic um, and immunoglobulin dense tissue. And this is what is part of that tissue. IgA is an important component of the, your ability to take care of things you've seen before that you are coming into contact with in your mucous membranes. It also happens to be one of your Um, antibodies that can be secreted in breast milk. So this is one of the reasons that breastfeeding or nursing infants is always highly recommended because it actually helps them in their immunity. Before they've even seen things, they may have the possibility in what's called colostrum, that first part of breast milk, from a mother to an infant before their digestive system um, becomes sort of um, blocked off from absorbing this, is going to be highly concentrated at the beginning of this um, breast milk in this IGA of things that the mom has been exposed to. So even if the infant hasn't yet come into contact with some of these viruses and bacteria, they can gain a little bit of immunity from their mother, which is really great. Um, Now, for a long time, um, probably more when I was an infant, breastfeeding was less popular. Everybody was moving to using formula, but there has been a resurgence in the recommendation for breastfeeding because of this very reason. It not only seems to reduce um, allergy development, but also seems to increase the immunity of infants for the first few months of their life without having had to benefit had to have been exposed to those themselves, so that's kind of nice. IgE is interesting, and actually, by the way, IgA looks like this. It has four binding sites. It is one of these Y-shaped structures set end-to-end within your mucous membranes. IgE is interesting because it is the one that is most predominant when you're having an allergic reaction. It is not really found in blood as much unless you're highly allergic to something and having a reaction. It is more in tissues unless during an inflammatory reaction. And that is because during an allergic reaction, you can actually detect IgE, in the bloodstream and that's one of the ways that they can determine that there is something that you are allergic to or having a hypersensitivity reaction to and we'll come back to IgE um, a little bit later when we talk about hypersensitivity reactions. It looks basically like the original um, immunoglobulin structure except it's a little bit longer. It has a little bit of extra material there at the end of that um, structure. Now IgD, we talk about this one a little bit less. And that's because for a long time, we didn't even really know what it did, and it's not found in high concentrations. That is because it seems to be like an early, almost like a practice version of making antibodies. It seems to be only found at the very beginning of your immune reaction, and it signals that B cells have been activated. It might just be like a way that your B cells are practicing how to make that particular antibody. And so it really only appears at the very beginning of that reaction. And it looks a little bit different too. And the reason that it was identified any, in, at all was that it, it does have a different structure. Um, it does not have all these binding or, or all these um, um, parts of the molecule that tie them together the way IgG does. It doesn't have a longer tail the way that IgE does. So it does look a little bit different. So we know it's, it's different, but its role is not... Um, as well understood, and it seems to not be present in high amounts. So it's really only these first four that have a huge role that I'm going to ask for you to understand. So let me go over how all this fits together, because we've talked about several different types of cells, we've talked about some different types of proteins, and I kind of want to get a bigger picture for you. So let's start out right here in the center. Let's say that you come into contact with some sort of virus. This is a dendritic cell or macrophage that is going to phagocytize or sort of Pac-Man-like process, eat this viral particle, and break it down into pieces. What it does then is it spits that piece back out onto its surface as part of its MHC class 2 molecule. And when it does this, you have other cells nearby who are going to see that, in this case, it is a T helper cell cuz remember that's the boss of the family who goes up to that macrophage and says, "Hey, that's not normal. I need to do something about that." When it does that, in addition to any cytokines or interleukins that are being released by the macrophage when it knows it's got something, you're also going to get this T helper cell begin to release cytokines or interleukins that are going to communicate with other lymphocytes. So here's where you get this involvement of both cell-mediated and humoral mediated or antibody mediated response your t helper cell as the boss of this immune system crime family is going to send out messages to other lymphocytes here one of the first ones it's going to recruit is cytotoxic t cells those rogue cells whose job is going to be to do a hit to find the target when they see it and kill any infected cell that has this particular antigen that it was shown on the surface. So that's one of the ways that your cytotoxic T cells respond after being told by the T helper cell who their target is. Now you're actually also going to get some memory cells as a part of that long-term ability to respond. You're also going to get memory helper cells that will develop that will remember that target in the future and be able to completely start this process again, but more quickly. You're also going to get a antibody mediated response. This T helper cell says to the B cell, all right, I found an antigen that you need to make antibodies to. And it sort of releases interleukins. It shows this B cell what that. Um, antigen is so that it can make antibodies specific to that. It's going to send out more interleukins and you're going to get what is called a clonal expansion of plasma cells. You're going to get identical plasma cells that all have the ability to make these antibodies specific to that antigen that it was shown. And then some of them, just like our T-cells that remembered, are going to Remain in your system for years, potentially decades, to remember how to make antibodies to that again in the future. So hopefully this kind of ties it all together for you. You can see where this all um, is a very intricate system, but very important to your ability to deal with many different types of threats and to develop a long-term ability to address those threats if you should come into contact with them again in the future. Now there's something else that I mentioned at the beginning, but I haven't really gone into detail on yet, and that's something called complement. Now as its name implies, um, it's spelled a little bit differently, but this is a type of protein that complements the immune system. It works with the immune system. What they are are little proteins, and there's a whole bunch of them, that sort of float around doing nothing and can't really do anything on their own, they're inactive, until they come in contact with an antibody that is connected to an antigen or they find an organism that has some sort of um, antigen that it is able to respond to. So there are two different what are called pathways that complement can work. So each of these Notations here that starts with the C is a different type of complement protein and I don't expect that you know these details. What I want you to understand is there's two different ways that complement works. In one sense, there's a possibility that after seeing something that it needs to react to, all of these proteins react to each other and cause them to deposit on the surface of a cell as what's called the Mac. membrane, attack complex. Now this is kind of super cool. So these are not cells, they're just proteins that have this ability to cascade upon each other, deposit themselves in the surface of a cell, and essentially poke a hole in it. By doing that, you are getting all kinds of fluid that is going to um, enter that cell because it's trying to dilute out some of those extra things that are inside the cell that aren't on the outside, and this lyses the cell. So these inactive proteins have this ability, once they start to cascade, to actually lice a cell, all because they kind of create this protein circle on the surface of that cell that pokes a hole in it. It's kind of a neat concept. It's also possible that individual pieces of those complement proteins are able to sort of mark a cell for phagocytosis. So if you have a macrophage or dendritic cell in the area, they will see this. So antigen-presenting cells or macrophages may see this marker or complement and then say, all right, I need to do something about that and it will then take that um, complement marker inside of itself, which has now been attached to this antigen, and begin to process it. So it's a really nice way to, again, the sort of summary of what complement does is it helps antigens and cells sort of communicate or interact more efficiently and more quickly and in some cases, even lysing a cell that it has identified as abnormal. So it's kind of a neat process that helps out your immune system. Now, a big part of how all of this works are chemical mediators. We've talked about this term before because we've got chemical mediators that actually help your inflammatory process in going on, and we talked about a bunch of those already. Histamine, bradykinin, prostaglandin, leukotrienes, These are all all a big part of what we talked about in the inflammatory response, or your second line of defense, your innate immune system. But these same types of, and again, I don't want you to get confused, these terms are interchangeable. Cytokines, chemical messengers, one of the really big ones that comes into play with your lymphocytes here in your acquired immunity or specific immune third line of defense is interleukins, and they're often abbreviated IL, and there are a bunch of different numbers. There's interleukin-1, which is secreted by a macrophage after it has um, come across an antigen. There's IL-2, which is secreted by your T helper cells to tell other cells around it, like cytotoxic T cells and B cells, that they need to react to this. the important thing I want you to realize here is that these are just another type of chemical messenger. But they have a specific term um, because here they work in between, or enter your white blood cells. And this is why I wanted to point those out. Now there's another one here that I haven't talked about that much. That actually is a big part of your second line of defense because it is nonspecific and that's called interferon. Interferon's kind of another cool substance, like complement, that really helps the immune system. And this is kind of an image of how um, interferon works. So if you have a cell, a host cell, that is infected by a virus, it will, as a defense mechanism, begin to make a substance called interferon, which is going to interfere with, when released, the infection of nearby cells. So let me kind of put this over here. It is going to help Prevent or protect nearby cells from infection. Okay, so it is made by usually an infected cell that recognizes that there's something going on and it wants to help out its friends by interfering with the infection of those cells. So that's kind of a way to remember its name, interferon. So it may help make cells nearby more resistant to viral attack. It also seems to be helpful in cancer, preventing um, other cells nearby from becoming cancerous because of genetic mutations. So sometimes it's actually used as a treatment. We can actually give interferon as almost like a medication to help individuals with viral infections and cancer. Um, So that may be something you may hear as part of treatments in certain conditions. Now how do we know what's going on in the immune system? There are some diagnostic tests or terms you should be familiar with because they may be used as part of a description of the diagnosis of some diseases. Now again, some abbreviations that I've used. I often abbreviate it, abbreviate the, term, the word antigen as AG and antibody as AB. Now one of the ways is we can look blood tests, and this is relatively common, you might need to identify infection of something by testing for the antigen. There are a couple ways to do this. One of the really common ways, for example, is to do PCR, polymerase chain reaction. This is usually looking for specific components of either a virus or a bacteria, that can be considered an antigen. So some sort of surface protein, usually, is what we're looking for. Or in some cases, we may even be looking for an internal antigen that would have been processed after it had gone through your immune system. As a primary example of this, for example, I could tell you, you've all had a hepatitis B vaccine. I could tell you, based on your hepatitis B surface antigen test, that you have received a vaccine as opposed to been infected with hepatitis B virus. That's because people with hepatitis B virus infection will also have positive antigen test to the core or inside the DNA of the hepatitis B virus. But those of you who've received the vaccine would not have antibodies to that core because you've never been exposed to the core you've only been exposed to antigen on the surface so that's one of the ways we can sort of um, distinguish things we're looking for the antigen of something in your bloodstream and that's usually what you might be able to do early on because it does take time to produce antibodies these may not appear right away And we do know there's a difference in which antibodies appear when. As we talked about a little bit ago, IgM antibodies appear before IgG. So you have to be testing for the right thing. And when you test for an antibody, it's called a titer. So what they do is they make multiple dilutions of your serum or plasma. And they test each of those for antibodies. And here's what it kind of looks like. So if you took um, some plasma or serum and diluted it 1 to 20, took um, took that and divided it in half again, 1 to 40, then again as 1 to 80, 1 to 160, 1 to 320, and so on, you would then do the same test on each one of those. And here, the stronger reaction would produce really big, clumps inside of that tube. That tells me that there are a whole lot of antibodies present in this tube. Then each time you dilute it, you would get less and less clumping, to the point where you're not going to get a whole lot of clumping at all once you get out here to 1 over 320. There is no clumping whatsoever in this particular tube. So that means the titer is 160. The last tube that reacted The last one that had enough antibodies to actually show a positive result was here at a dilution of 1 over 160. So that's considered a titer of 160. So that's how you do that. You determine the strength of the antibody response by diluting it out and seeing how far out you get a reaction. Now the reason that this is important to know is because sometimes studies have been done to know how many antibodies you need in order to be protected from infection from something. And I'll go back to the hepatitis B example. So if your, your body had an adequate response to the hepatitis B vaccine, we may know from studies, and I'm just throwing this out there because I don't know the real number, let's say that you had to have at least a one over 80 reaction on your titer to be considered protected from infection with that particular virus. This means that if you only reacted here at one over 80, then that would be sufficient. But if your reaction stopped here at one over 40, you might need to be vaccinated again because you don't have enough antibodies to be protected if you're exposed. So this is why knowing your titer is important. Um, In fact, I'm assuming you probably all had, did have to have a blood test looking for that titer in order to make sure that you had a sufficient reaction to the vaccine. Now, it's also possible that we would look for how many cells are present in the bloodstream. We can do what's called a cell count. Now, usually when they're testing blood, they'll do an initial white blood cell count, but they can also look at how many lymphocytes specifically. They can then even break it down into the types of lymphocytes. We can look at how many T, B, and NK cells and further break it down into the types. So if you recall, we had four different types of T cells. And one of the really big ones we look for is the ones that have a CD4 marker versus the ones that have a CD8 marker, your T4 helper cells versus your T8 cytotoxic cells. Okay, so that's something that we'll come back to. Because knowing the ratio of your T4 helper cells to your T8 cytotoxic cells is one of the markers of a conversion of someone from being HIV positive to having AIDS. So kind of keep that in mind, knowing that not only how many of each type of white blood cell, but even each type of T cell can become really important in certain diagnostic um, procedures for a disease. So that's everything we need to know about the components of the immune system, how they work, and how we would test for them. So let's talk about how this process can be used or discussed in your long-term immunity or response. So we've kind of talked about this already, but I want to make it very clear that you have a difference in how you react the first time you see something versus the second or future, subsequent times you see something. The first response, or primary response, is when you have your first exposure, your initial exposure to an antigen of some kind. Okay, here, the cells haven't seen it before, so they have to be what's called sensitized. They have to be shown what that antigen is, so your T cells and B cells need to have some sort of exposure to that antigen so that they can either recognize it, as in the case of a cytotoxic cell and kill it, or in the case of a B cell, know to make the correct type of antibody to it. And that antibody that first is produced is IgM. Here it is the first show up and it has the highest concentration in the beginning then IgG kind of comes more slowly later. And this is what you see here. The initial antigen exposure from either infection or we'll talk about vaccination in a second. It has the same type of response. The green line is your IgM. It is the first one and most concentrated one to show up when you initially are exposed to something. IgG, which is the blue line, is much more slow and it does not have as high of a concentration. When you are initially exposed to something. However, it remains in your system, the IgG, for a long time. And if you have a re exposure or reinfection, or in some cases a booster vaccine to that antigen, your secondary response is much faster and more efficient. So this happens more quickly because you have both memory cells and IgG already in the system, in circulation. Okay? So what this is going to do is just activate those memory cells, memory T cells, memory B cells, that already know how to address that particular antigen because they've seen it before. So in this case, your antibodies rise faster, and IgG is going to be the fastest and in the highest concentration, or highest quantity. And you can see that here. Remember, your blue line here is the IgG. It, if you had a re-exposure, rises super quickly, even higher than the initial rate. But IgM is just a blip. And that's because it's not as necessary, you've already seen this, your body knows what to do. And your IgG responds very quickly with a high um, quantity of IgG being produced. Now, we can use some of this to our advantage. There is a term called acquired immunity that describes how we develop this ability to become resistant to things. And there are ways that this can happen naturally and ways that we can sort of force your body to be able to resist infection from something. So, here I'm going to give you some examples of ways that this occurs both naturally and artificially, and ways that you might go through the process in your body itself or that you'll receive the benefits of someone else making that antibody so here natural would be as its name implies that it is happening in a way that is not forced and active would mean that you are going through the process in your own body of responding to that antigen here a natural active acquired immunity is when you are infected or you get the disease. So let's say you get chickenpox. That is a natural active immunity. You acquired the virus, you were infected by the virus, and your body responds to it in the normal process that we just described. Versus an artificial active means that you have an unnatural exposure, like a vaccination. In this case, the same thing could apply. It could be a chickenpox vaccination. We now have a vaccine that will expose you to the virus that causes chickenpox prior to your natural exposure in the environment. So this is called an artificial active acquired immunity. It's not a natural exposure in the environment. We're forcing you to be exposed to it, but your body is still doing the work of making those antibodies. So it's a different type of exposure but a similar response in the terms of your making of the antibodies. These last two however are ways that you can get immunity but not necessarily have to do the work. It is possible that through a natural process that you will be given an immunity by a passive response. Now you're probably trying to think of how this might be possible, but we did discuss already a couple examples of this. The most common example of this is maternal-fetal exchange or passing of maternal immunity through either the placenta, because if you recall, we talked about how IgG can cross the placenta from mother to fetus before birth, or in colostrum. Remember I said that breast milk has this ability to help infants who haven't been exposed to something to have some immunity from their mother, okay? So this is a natural process. The infant or fetus does not have to go through the process of producing those antibodies themselves, but they still get that benefit in a totally natural process. Now, another one that usually is um, less easy for people to understand, probably because they haven't heard of it as much before, is what's called artificial passive. So a non-natural way of this to occur that you don't have to go through the process yourself. And an example of this is what's called IV IG. In other words, intravenous immunoglobulin. You might be thinking, now why would we ever do this? What happens here is perhaps because of a bloodborne pathogen exposure. Let's say that You were working in the emergency room or you were assisting um, somebody in an emergency after a a car accident or something, and you were exposed to um, blood in your eyes or mucous membranes. Here, you would most likely be injected, if we don't know the viral status of the individual, with antibodies. Okay, This is often after an exposure of some kind especially if that person who was exposed did not have the hepatitis B vaccine or if we're suspecting that the person whose blood or body fluids they were exposed to was HIV positive. They might also then go through the process of injecting someone with antibodies to hopefully prevent your immune system um, from—or to help your immune system since it hasn't been exposed— we want to try to get rid of that virus, or whatever that other antigen is, before it has a chance to infect your own cells. Now another time that this might be used is as what's called an antivenin or anti-serum. Let's say that you had a snake bite, and the venom from the snake is causing tissue damage. If we can determine the type of snake, or you saw it and can identify it, you can be injected with antibodies that were um, made specifically for that venom or antigen or toxin that you have been exposed to. So that's another example of how you might artificially be given um, the immunity towards something that you've been exposed to. Now let's talk a little bit about two examples of this. Artificial active immunity. Now, we talked about the large example of this as being vaccination. Now, vaccination um, has become sort of a hot topic of debate. It kind of started after um, Edward Jenning discovered that back when um, smallpox was a really big public health issue, there were certain people who didn't really, even with exposure, seem to come down with this infection. They noticed that, the, he noticed that there was a milkmaid who, because she had been previously exposed to a similar virus called cowpox, that she didn't get smallpox when exposed. And so what he did was he took some fluid from her, and believe it or not, a mother allowed him to inoculate her eight-year-old boy with this fluid and then purposely exposed him to smallpox to see if he would get it, and he did not. So this is how vaccines sort of began the infancy of vaccines, that if you expose someone to either something similar or a weakened version of that antigen, you might allow the body to begin to make antibodies to it so that it will respond to that when it sees it and you won't become ill. So. One of the ways that you can make a vaccine is use a live attenuated antigen. In other words, this is an alive or live version of that substance, but it is weakened or attenuated. Now, an example of this is called um, the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, and rubella. Um, if you've had one of these recently or a booster, but certainly in childhood when you get your first vaccinations of this, it tends to make people sort of feel ill about you know a week or so afterwards, and that's because they are being injected with a live but weakened version of those antigens. So it can still make them feel sort of crummy. But the idea here is that you begin to make antibodies to that or boost your production as a secondary response to those antigens so that when you do come in contact with it, you will not get it in the future, okay? But there's another possibility here that won't make you sick, and that's when you have a killed antigen. So this is sort of like parts of dead or not infectious virus or bacterial particles, and this is what the flu vaccine is, for example. It is a killed antigen. You're in, now, this is debatable as well. There are some people who claim that when they get the flu vaccine, it makes them sick. Usually, that, something that people don't realize is that it takes up to two weeks, and maybe in some cases even a little longer, for people to actually make these antibodies. So if you are exposed, and something else we haven't talked about just yet is, either, is that there is an incubation period often with both viruses and bacterial infections, where the antigen is in your body, you've been exposed to the organism, but you're not seeing symptoms yet. So there's actually a pretty big window with the flu virus. If you were exposed to the flu virus in a couple weeks prior to your vaccine or during the two weeks between the time of the vaccine and complete um, antibody production, you can still then develop symptoms and a weakened version of that virus. So it, it's not possible for you to get sick from it. Usually what happens if you think you have gotten sick from a flu vaccine, it's because you were exposed to it during that period where you didn't have full immunity yet, or a possibility you were exposed to a strain of that flu virus that wasn't included in this year's vaccine, which is also often a possibility. And we'll talk more about that in a future lecture. But then there's another possibility, that rather than trying to keep your body from being exposed to a bacteria itself, what if we help your body to fight off any toxins that that bacteria produces? So often you may be injected with an attenuated or weakened version of a toxin. And you might wonder, when does that ever happen? This is actually what the tetanus vaccine is. If you've had a tetanus shot, you are not being exposed to antigens from the organism that causes tetanus. You're being exposed to antigens from the toxin that that organism makes, which is largely the reason that people have symptoms. It's from the toxin, not the bacteria itself. Okay, so these are some... Um, everyday examples of how artificial active immunity is used in our society. Now, artificial passive immunity, I talked about a little bit um, with either being exposed to a bloodborne pathogen, like a blood and body fluid exposure, or if you had an animal or insect bite, So this might be snakes, spider bites, where we can identify the possible culprit and then give you antibodies to that toxin that you had been exposed to. Now, as part of your future professions, it is really important to know how all the stuff with the immune system interacts with exercise. Now, there are a couple of different possibilities here. That vary based on time intensity age, etc moderate exercise moderate regular exercise has been found to be beneficial to the immune system in fact, among older adults who as we'll learn at the end of the semester have a natural decrease in the number and function of usually its T cells specifically that tend to decline you're going to get a sort of counteracting of this aging response of the immune system if you have moderate regular exercise so it helps everybody at all ages however older adults may have a a really beneficial response as a way of counteracting their susceptibility to things as they age however prolonged, intense exercise we know suppresses the immune system, and you can kind of see it here in this image. There have been studies that have shown, especially for respiratory diseases, that as your um, intensity and um, time of exercise increases, your susceptibility to infection, and this one is, and it says it's hard to read here, URI, upper respiratory infection increases. So, you know, marathon runners, for example, they're more at risk of upper respiratory infections with overtraining or after a long race. And so that's something just to be aware of. You also will notice here that this doesn't just start with those who exercise. We know that those people who do not exercise at all, who are sedentary, actually have an equal amount of being Exposed to and acquiring a u urine, no, I'm sorry, not urinary, upper respiratory tract infection as they do people who overtrain. So, your best bet to try to avoid especially upper respiratory infections is to have moderate, regular exercise. Now, what happens if the immune system doesn't quite work right? There are multiple times when this happens. Let's talk about a whole category of conditions, where this occurs, called hypersensitivity reactions. This is when the immune system overreacts. It has a hypersensitive reaction. This is important to understand because there's a well-known example for each of these. There are four different types. Now, you may occasionally see these abbreviated with Roman numerals, but just understand they're, they're pretty much the same thing. So a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction is an immediate immune reaction, often called an allergic reaction. But you have had to have been exposed to it at some time in the past. Now, an allergic reaction can happen at any time, any time during your lifetime. Even if you didn't have a reaction to that thing in your past, you could all of a sudden have an overreaction to it. But you have to have seen it before. And that's because you have to have had a primary immune response that now has combined with that antigen and developed memory cells and antibodies to this antigen. Then that second time and subsequent future times you're exposed to it, you have a very swift, immediate reaction to it. That involves IgE, remember that's the antibody that's primary to your allergic response, and you get mast cells releasing histamine. Remember what histamine does as part of your inflammatory response. You get swelling, increased vasodilation, and vascular permeability. And you're going to get a reaction from one of your white blood cells that is called an eosinophil. And that's because eosinophils naturally make what's kind of like an antihistamine in your own body. So when this goes up, these tend to go up as well. Now, what actually is seen as part of, externally, as part of this allergic reaction depends on the severity. If you have a minor reaction to something you're allergic to, it could be as simple as a rash or hives. Or in the case of hay fever or environmental allergies, it might exhibit itself as rhinitis. So a runny nose and sneezing, itchy eyes, all the way up to something that is very severe, like anaphylaxis. So this is where you have... Massive inflammation that causes vasodilation, increased vascular permeability, a drop in your blood pressure, um, and trouble breathing, shortness of breath, often because you get um, obstruction of the airway from tissue swelling. And you may go into what's called shock, anaphylactic shock, because of this drop in blood pressure, and this obstruction of the airway leads to hypoxia. So This can be life-threatening. And you probably are familiar with anaphylactic reactions to things like peanut butter, bee stings, shellfish, etc. Or even medications. Some people have this kind of reaction to things like penicillin or aspirin. So this all depends on how your body reacts. And it's possible that if you have a minor reaction in the beginning, like a rash to penicillin, If you don't avoid that substance or antigen in the future, you could progress to something more severe down the line. So this is why it's important to know what you are allergic to and make sure you're avoiding it so that your body doesn't have a heightened reaction in the future. Now regardless of what the case might be, usually treatment here is meant to counteract histamine in some way or inflammation. So one of the possibilities to treat allergies is a drug called diphenhydramine, and this is good to know. You know it by the trade name Benadryl, or another antihistamine called chlorpheniramine by the trade name Chlortrinaton. These are over-the-counter substances meant to counteract histamine. Now we also know that you can reduce the inflammatory response by steroids. Those can also be helpful. As part of reducing this um, inflammatory reaction that happens because of the release of histamine in this allergic reaction. Now, if you have a severe reaction, another possible treatment is an EpiPen. So, this is the injection of epinephrine, hopefully, immediately when it, this reaction is noticed, so that you're going to get what is basically the opposite. You're going to get Um, vasodilate, uh, I'm sorry, in this case, you are going to get vasoconstriction. You're essentially reversing the histamine release and the histamine response, in addition to increasing the heart rate, etc., so that you are getting a reversal of this shock. Because remember, if you have low blood pressure, in order to counteract that, you're going to need to vasoconstrict and increase the blood pressure. So you're essentially um, causing the body to go into a fight or flight response by injecting um, epinephrine to counteract the anaphylactic shock. So if someone has an anaphylactic reaction, they hopefully carry around an EpiPen and they know what they're allergic to in order to be able to avoid it, if possible. If it's like insect bites like bee stings, sometimes you don't have a lot of control over that other than avoiding going outside. Um, But this is a really important thing and it may be part of first aid training for many of you um, because you could be working with populations that have known allergies and you need to have EpiPens available. So that's a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. Minor things like allergies to drugs and food all the way up to anaphylactic allergies. Cytotoxic reactions are type two hypersensitivity reactions, and these, rather than IgE and histamine, you are getting an IgG response that leads to cell lysis. That's why it's called a cytotoxic reaction. Here, this usually is the result of antigen-antibody complexes that are on a cell surface meaning that that cell, once the IgG response occurs, is going to end up being lysed. And here there are multiple examples of this. One of the possibilities is called immune hemolytic anemia. And one of the ways that this happens is in a blood transfusion, that the wrong type of blood is given. So you naturally make... antibodies to the opposite types of what you are. So, for example, if you are type A blood, you will make anti-B antibodies. So if you are type A and you are given B blood, you will have IgG antibodies to those red blood cells that have a B marker on their surface, and you will lyse those red blood cells you've been given that have a B marker on their surface. Now, this actually usually results in death. If someone receives the wrong ABO blood group, then it usually results in that person having such a massive cytotoxic reaction that they die. So this is why matching the correct blood is important. Um, Another possibility here is that you can have a type of reaction in the neuromuscular system. Another example of this, in addition to blood transfusion reactions, is something called myasthenia gravis. Myasthenia gravis. This is when you've made IgG antibodies that block acetylcholine receptors. And so you no longer get adequate functioning of the neuromuscular system. So that's another example of a cytotoxic reaction, okay? One that we're also pretty familiar with, though you may not realize it, is a type 3 hypersensitivity reaction, which is called an immune complex. These are not antigen-antibody reactions that are connected to a cell surface. These are antigen-attached to antibody in the blood circulation. And this is how most immune autoimmune diseases work, with the exception of myasthenia gravis. This for example is how lupus works, this is how rheumatoid arthritis works, and there are some other um, autoimmune reactions we'll talk about in the future. So what happens here is you have these free circulating complexes that deposit in various tissues. And they start an inflammatory reaction, usually by um, causing complement to be activated. And you may even then get cell lysis because of that, which, again, leads to an inflammatory reaction. Um, There are several different types we'll talk about in the future, like... um, post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis, which is a kidney disease that is a type 3 autoimmune reaction, mainly from antigen and antibodies after a strep infection. Um, And then there are some other ones that don't fall under this category because they don't use antibodies. Types 1 through 3, you've noticed, all had something to do with antibodies and a hypersensitivity reaction. This one is different a type 4 hypersensitivity reaction does not use antibodies it is cell mediated which means it takes longer if you recall i pointed out that the t-cell response in your immune system takes longer to go through all that and so it is going to be a delayed response this does not involve antibodies the way the first three do and you are familiar with several of these types of hypersensitivity responses For example, if you're allergic to poison ivy, you know that you tend not to show symptoms of that until a day or two after you've had an exposure, and sometimes people don't even remember that they've been exposed. They just all of a sudden have this breakout of a rash from um, poison ivy. Another possibility is something we use to our advantage to test for TB. So if you think about how a TB test is done, we tend to go into... Um, a nurse's office or a doctor's office and they inject a small amount of antibody or antigen, I'm sorry, antigen underneath the skin and it makes kind of a little bubble. And what happens is they ask you to come back a couple days later and they look for a little bump in the skin. If you had been exposed to TB before, over those couple of days you will have a T cell reaction to that antigen that will make a little granuloma under your skin. And we'll talk more about that when we get to discussing TB in the respiratory lecture, but just to add to this example, that is one of the ways that we test for a TB exposure is using the type 4 hypersensitivity delayed cell-mediated response. This is also, by the way, how we have transplant rejection. It is part of what's either called host versus graft disease or it's possible that you can have graft-versus-host disease, okay? So what happens here is T-cells that are present within that transplanted tissue either begins to attack the host if there are T-cells in the donated organ or tissue, or the host's own T-cells attack the the graft and then reject that tissue as not-self. That's essentially what's happening here. It recognizes that those surface antigens are not self and it attacks it. In order to prevent this from happening, because your individual receiving this tissue or organ transplant really needs that tissue, you have to suppress the immune system. You have to suppress this T-cell response that would normally reject that, that tissue. And one of the ways to do that is to use um, steroids, essentially like prednisone, to reduce the immune response so that you're not going to reject that tissue. This also means, however, if you recall what the long-term effects of prednisone are, is it makes this individual more, um, susceptible to infection because not only will they not respond to this non-self tissue, they may not respond to new antibodies or bacteria either. So it can become a risk long-term. Let's talk about a couple examples. Let's talk about a type three hypersensitivity response. Oh, sorry, I forgot about this image. Again, if you're a visual person, here's a nice way to compare each type of hypersensitivity reaction. A type one hypersensitivity reaction we know more as an allergy, okay? You're exposed to some sort of antigen that you overreact to, and that causes um, release of IgE and, Um, histamine from mast cells. And this is things that you may know as hay fever, asthma, food allergies, etc. Type 2 is the cytotoxic response. This is how blood transfusion reactions occur. Type 3 is the next example I want to talk about. This is things like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, where you have circulating um, antigen-antibody complexes um, in the system. And then your type four hypersensitivity, which we just discussed is a delayed response because it uses T cells to produce that response. But let's talk about an example of a type three hypersensitivity. This is what's called SLE, which stands for systemic lupus erythematosus. There is another milder version of this that is called discoid lupus erythematosus, which is a skin condition that's milder. But this one, as its name implies, is systemic. There are many symptoms and many different tissues, and that's actually one of the reasons it makes it hard to diagnose in the beginning. But the rest of this name, it's typically just called lupus. But its full name kind of gives you a description of what happens. It is systemic. And you do have, initially, one of the things that is noticed is some skin changes, an erythematosis, a redness, erythema, to the skin. Now, the term lupus refers to one of those skin symptoms that is recognized. That's kind of um, a Latinic term related to a the shape of a wolf's marking on the face. We tend to call it more of a butterfly rash now, but that's where the name... Um, Comes from. And one of the ways I always tend to remember that is um, if you've seen the Harry Potter movies, you know that Professor Lupin becomes a werewolf. And so the, usually there's the, these distinctive markings on the surface of a wolf's coloring that go up and over, and you kind of see it here, up and over the cheeks and the nose. And we now call it a butterfly rash. It kind of looks like a butterfly has um, a, a pink butterfly shape is resting over the nose and cheeks of an individual affected by this. But let's talk about the pathophysiology. How does this happen? Well, what happens is you end up beginning to make antibodies to some self-antigens. They're called autoantibodies. And some of those tissues that you most commonly make um, antibodies to are um, DNA, you can make antibodies to red blood cells. You can make antibodies to other nuclear antigens. In fact, that's one of the ways that we test for it, is we look for anti-nuclear antibodies. And then these um, antibodies connect with those antigens within your body and create immune complexes. So that immune complex is another way, way to say antigen-antibody connected to each other in circulation. So these immune complexes are floating around the bloodstream and they end up depositing in various tissues. And when they deposit in those tissues, they activate complement. Remember that's that inactive set of proteins that can cascade to either mark a cell for phagocytosis or lyse a cell with the membrane attack complex. And when that happens, it produces inflammation in those tissues. And it's really tough, initially, to diagnose this. The most common people affected by this are females, usually in middle age, usually between 20 and 40 years of age is when this is diagnosed. And there are some ethnicities that are affected more than others, usually it's minorities. But what's really interesting about this is there does seem to be a connection to genetics, to other types of autoimmune diseases, and environment, that some people who live in northern climates, it may be related to UV exposure, um, also have a greater chance of acquiring this type three hypersensitivity. So for the most part, other than knowing it's an autoimmune disease, we don't exactly know what triggers this. So in that sense, it is idiopathic. We don't necessarily, we know it's an autoimmune disease, but we don't necessarily know the initial trigger for the autoimmunity. We know that there is a genetic component. We know that there is potentially an environmental component. But it is tough to diagnose. Initially, that butterfly rash is going to be present. Another one that's often common is joint pain. So you're getting almost like an arthritis type response. Usually individuals are very tired. There's a lot of fatigue related to the inflammation. Now, long term, they usually have systemic involvement, meaning that all other tissues are going to have these immune complexes depositing. For example, kidney disease is common. Um, It's not uncommon to have inflammation in the muscles. Not uncommon to have changes to the spleen, splenomegaly. They may have osteoporosis. They may have something called Raynaud's phenomenon, where the tips of their fingers become hypoxic and turn sort of a blue color. Um, Lupus nephritis is this idea of kidney problems. Um, and This partly happens because the immune complexes deposit on the surface of the glomerulus, and that inflammation damages the glomerulus, leading to kidney problems. Um, pleuritis pneumonitis, which is lung problems related to inflammation from immune complexes, and they can have blood changes. They may become anemic and have low white blood cell and platelet counts, and some central nervous system components. So there are all types of um, ways that this can present, and it becomes more systemic as it goes on. We do know, however, that people can have periods of remission, periods of time, at least, where the symptoms are lessened. Um, So that's usually the goal of treatment, is to try to reduce symptoms, because there really is no cure. Initially, diagnosis is tough, though. Um, We tend to use some of these, usually we look for symptoms in four different systems as part of the presentation, and we do some blood tests. One of those things that is not Um, specific but is sensitive, remember those terms from the very first lecture, is a positive ANA, anti-nuclear antibody, and that's what you see here in this picture. If there are antibodies connected to self-nuclear antigens, we can apply another antibody that is specific to that with a tag on it that makes it glow. So we know if it's glowing that there must be anti-nuclear antibodies present. However, you can have a positive ANA in other autoimmune diseases, so it's not specific to lupus, but it usually is specific to autoimmunity. So here, usually we are trying to reduce symptoms. Often steroids become a big part of treatment to try to reduce the inflammatory response that your body is having. Sometimes NSAIDs might help for more minor symptoms or times when the symptoms are not significant. Um, But long term, there usually ends up being these multi-system involvement um, that can be very tough to adjust to. Um, Avoiding stress, getting enough sleep, avoiding um, excessive sunlight exposure can also help to reduce those periods of exacerbation when the symptoms are more significant. Um, What happens if the opposite occurs? We've talked here about times when your immune system overreacts and you have either a hypersensitivity reaction that exhibits itself as an allergy or an autoimmune disease, or here we need to discuss what happens if you don't react the way that you should with your immune system. A primary immunodeficiency is usually a genetic cause, and that is some sort of failure to make effective immune components. And often, it's usually only one particular part. And you can tell this sometimes early on in a child's life. Usually if it's a T-cell deficiency, for example, you will notice, if you recall, there was a different effectiveness of T-cells versus B-cells. Versus B cells, you would have different diseases present. So we know that kids end up getting ill a lot. They may be um, exposed to more things, their immune system is still getting used to things. So you can have a lot of illnesses in childhood just in a normal immune system. But what you might notice in somebody with a specific immunodeficiency from genetic problems is that they tend to get a particular type of infection more commonly. So repeated viral or fungal infections is probably more related to T-cell deficiencies. Remember, B-cells were bacterial or extracellular viruses, and so you might see particular types of bacterial infections more common than other children. And so then they can do further testing to look for either B- or T-cell numbers or B- or T-cell effectiveness to try to narrow down what might be going on. A secondary immunodeficiency, though, is usually induced or caused by something else. In this case, there's a couple possibilities. It could be drugs. Here, usually, steroids will cause that kind of reaction. We know that steroids reduce the efficiency of the immune system in both your macrophage response and your um, other relationship between immune cells. Or it could be infection. And here the primary example is HIV, which we'll talk about in just a second. Human immunodeficiency virus. Now, the issue with either of these, primary or secondary immunodeficiency, is that you're going to be more susceptible to certain types of infection. And one of those that's possible infection is called an opportunistic infection. Opportunistic infections don't normally infect a healthy immune system or normal immune system. So things that we don't normally succumb to on a day-to-day basis are um, the bacteria and fungi that reside in our normal flora, for example. You have all kinds of organisms that live on and inside your body at all times, that we actually live symbiotically with That we need in order to keep other things from setting up camp, or that we need in order for our own digestion, etc. They don't normally cause infection. But in somebody whose immune system is not working well, they may actually cause infection. Like They may be more susceptible to fungal infections, even though we have fungi on our body at all times. So this is a way that we would know that we need to maybe be more vigilant. In fact, while we normally don't prescribe antibiotics unless we know there is an infection, there are times when you may give um, antibiotics ahead of time called prophylactic antibiotic therapy. An example of this would be if somebody who had a kidney transplant, for example, needs some dental work done, let's say they need a root canal, they are going to be exposed to bacteria in their mouth through these open wounds that may be created by doing a root canal. And so you may need to give antibiotics ahead of time in order to help the body respond to being exposed to things that it's not as well as well equipped to deal with because the immune system is immunodeficient. Okay, so those are just some examples of things that you might need to do or be aware of if your immune system doesn't function as adequately as it should. Well, here's another example then of a secondary immunodeficiency due to infection of the human immunodeficiency virus. Now what I want to emphasize here is using the terms HIV positive and AIDS interchangeably is actually not technically correct because there is a distinction between the two. And I'll describe why that is here in a second. We all know that the transmission is blood and body fluid exposure. Most commonly, or at least the highest concentration, is in blood. But it can be transmitted through sexual contact as well. Um, While it may be found in low concentrations in things like saliva, there hasn't really been a confirmed, documented, um, well-known transmission through things like saliva or skin contact, for example. So those are not things to be afraid of in terms of acquiring um, the human immunodeficiency virus. Diagnostically, As I said, there is a difference between being HIV positive and having AIDS. (coughs) HIV positive is usually a diagnosis, and sorry, I realize I have a misspelling here. Um, This is going to be a diagnosis that requires a blood test because the first phase of this infection usually is, is including only weak or mild symptoms that could be overlooked, followed by a period with no symptoms, called a latency period. So during that time, the person is considered HIV positive usually because a blood test has either found positive HIV antigen or been found positive for HIV antibodies. And I always like to mention here that there is a window period. Remember, it takes a while for you to make antibodies. So it's possible that if you've only recently been exposed, you may not show a positive result for either of these. But this will appear first, the antigen in the bloodstream, and then the antibodies will appear later after you've had that window period where your immune system begins to react to it. Now the thing that I like to mention here is that part of what makes this um, causing an immunodeficiency is that this virus infects T4 helper cells. That is why it produces an immunodeficiency. Remember, your T4 helper cells are the boss. They are the head of your immune system crime family, and without them, the rest of your immune system does not know what to do. And so during the beginning, your your initial symptoms are things that might just indicate any illness. Fatigue, remember my fun word, malaise, meaning that you just feel crummy, you may have a fever, but these are symptoms that you might experience with any of a number of different infections. And so you might not necessarily think that you've been exposed unless you knew you had some sort of bloodborne exposure. So after that, then you enter this phase where there are no symptoms. It is a latency period. During both of these um, phases of the infection, you are considered HIV positive, because at this point, it's really only blood cell tests, um, or your blood tests that are indicating that you have the infection. Usually though, potentially years later, is where you actually enter a clinical phase. This is where you can actually see more significant, (coughs) excuse me, more significant symptoms. And this diagnosis um, usually happens when you begin to see different types of um, either clinical features or blood features. Initially, some of those clinical features include opportunistic infections. or certain types of cancers. This pneumocystis carinii is an infection that they only really started seeing when this virus was initially being discovered. It was, they thought this sort of new infection, turns out it only existed in people who did not have a highly functioning immune system. It's also possible that another um, organism, this is a fungus, a relatively normal fungus, for example, in our environment, that tends to um, cause infection in people who have progressed to having acquired immunodeficiency syndrome or AIDS. So those things, in addition to a certain type of skin cancer called Kaposi's sarcoma, may be present usually only in people who have progressed to the third phase, which is a clinical AIDS diagnosis. Now, if you look at, in addition to these opportunistic infections and cancers, this might be if someone hasn't known they were exposed or haven't known their risk prior to this, this might be the first thing that you see in terms of diagnosing. That would trigger you then to do blood tests to to confirm a diagnosis. If we can confirm with either the antigen or antibody, or look specifically at those T4 helper cell counts, then we can know the person has progressed from being HIV positive to having AIDS. Usually here you have a a very low T4 cell count. Normally you have a much higher number of T4 helper cells than you do T8 cytotoxic cells. Here, that ratio becomes lower. You have fewer T4 cells than you do T8 cells, which is not normal. Normally that should be a ratio of two to one. You should have twice as many T4 helper cells as you do T8 cells. And when that drops below that ratio, we know that the individual has progressed to having a true immunodeficiency rather than just being HIV positive. Okay, so um, this is an example of why it's an important distinction to make. As far as treatment goes, this is important to understand Um, when we in a little bit talk about infection and um, anti-infective drugs you'll understand that treating virus infections of any kind is difficult Um, and so there is no cure for hiv because of the fact that viral drugs don't completely kill a virus all they can really do is slow the reproduction of the virus. And this is a retrovirus, meaning that it is an RNA virus that has to, when it takes over a cell, convert to DNA and then back to RNA before it can make more of itself. So most of the drug treatments are called retroviral drugs. And one, for example, Um, drug that your book talks about that is sort of well-known is called AZT. And there are usually a cocktail of drugs including this AZT that are meant to attack the replication of this reproduction of this virus at various points in its life cycle. Um, And that's because that is the best way to try to slow its reproduction because all that reproduction is happening inside of these T4 helper cells. So we need to try to attack it at various points in that cycle. So it's usually a cocktail of multiple medications taken at multiple times during the day. Um, And then something else to mention here as well is this idea that um, you can usually um, not necessarily delay the progression to this final phase. Um, If you can be diagnosed at least in phase one, you're mainly just prolonging the latency period. You're slowing down the reproduction of that virus within the T4 cells to try to keep more T cell count or more T cells around so that your count stays higher for longer. Because what leads to the immunodeficiency is the T4 cells beginning to die. By the way, the reason we don't have a a vaccine for this just yet either is this is a virus that mutates very easily. And so a vaccine wouldn't really be effective because you would only have immunity against the strain that was contained in the vaccine, not against any um, mutated versions of that virus that would look different to your immune system. So this is one that's an active area of research because of how it has really truly affected it's it's almost considered like um, an, a, a pandemic, so to speak, in certain parts of the world, specifically Africa, where there are um, not only homosexual individuals who've acquired and passed this, but also heterosexual relationships where it's passed among husband and wife, and then to children through the birth process as well. So it can be quite devastating um, when it because of this period of time where you don't know you have symptoms. And so you at that point can continue to spread it even though you have this latency period where you don't have symptoms. So this is a, an area of a lot of research. If you have any questions about any of the other material about the immune system, please let me know. But make sure you're familiar with some of the things that I've really emphasized and starred and pointed out for you and some of these examples of different types of hypersensitivities or immunodeficiencies.